Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. It's Monday, March 22nd. We're just a bit over a year into this now. We're three months into lockdown level five. And I don't know about you, but there's a sense, I think, that we're all a bit broken. Although due to circumstances which differ wildly depending on your job situation and uh, your economic situation and all of that, um, whether you've lost people or not lost people, well, due to all those circumstances, some of us are more broken than others. And I don't know what to tell you, but I did see this poem by John O'Donoghue the other day and it gave me a sense of calm for a few moments. So I offer it to you at the beginning of this podcast, although I am aware that the time for poetry may well be gone, but for what it's worth, here it is. This is the time to be slow. Lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Try as best you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come good and you will find your feet again on fresh pastures of promise where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. So there you go. I hope that gave you a little moment uh, of contemplation there. It helped me during the week, so I thought I'd pass it on. Now, today, I'm really happy to bring you a conversation I had with Melissa Rice. Melissa is the presenter of BBC Radio 5 Live's podcast, Hooked, The Unexpected Addicts. And she has written a book called Sobering, Lessons Learned the Hard Way on Drinking, Thinking and Quitting. And I think it's kind of timely because, in fairness, there's been a bit more drinking going on during the pandemic. Now, it's a book written with the help of rehab and addiction specialists. There's lots of science and and really good advice there. But most of all, it's a deeply personal story of an insecure teenager turned Liverpudlian party girl, a school teacher turned alcoholic and now recovering alcoholic turned award winning podcaster. And I think even if you don't struggle with addiction, you're going to get something from this conversation because it's about loads of other things as well, about denial, isolation, shame and those moments when we have to ask for help. Melissa is a wonderful, authentic voice in this space and I hope you'll find the conversation interesting, hopeful, thought-provoking and that at some points it even makes you smile. Here she is, the author of Sobering, the inimitable Melissa Rice. Melissa, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Now, you have been very, very honest in your book, uh, painfully so. Um, And this is where I have to mention that you were once a Morris dancer. I was. (laughs) No one wants to admit that. Do you know, this is the problem. Because when I was writing the book, it was in lockdown and I, I didn't think of who would be reading it and there's so many Northern Scout references in there and then it's only when I read it back I'm thinking Christ why have I spoken about Morris Danson it's so 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 let's get that out of the way first let's do your confessional on that as a young girl growing up in Kirkby in Liverpool you did Morris dancing can you just explain yourself I, I can't explain so it's not like Maypole Morris dancing but there are bells involved I It's really difficult to describe what it is, but it really is a rite of passage that when you're a young girl, you'll join a Morris dancing troupe and it's like rivalry. So where football's like Everton and Liverpool, it'll be like your two Morris dancing troops. And I tell you what, it was fabulous. The rivalry, the bitching. Oh, it was just, honestly, it was brilliant. But it's only when you leave Liverpool and you realise that nowhere else and nobody goes to Morris dancing that you realise it was really sad. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, listen, I hope your next book is about marriage dancing, but this one definitely isn't really. It's no. just a, a little mention in the book that I thought I'd, I'd start the interview with because it really tickled me because um, I've never met a Morris dancer. So that you're the first one. But the book is not about that. It's called Sobering Lessons Learned, The Hard Way on Drinking, Thinking and Quitting. And the first thing I want to ask you about is mental health, actually, Um in a more serious way than about the Morris dancing, because you really do start with that. And that's where it kind of begins for you. And I think that's really interesting because I was looking at some statistics um, and I found that uh, something like 37 percent of alcoholics and 53 percent of drug users also have some kind of mental health issue as well. And you're very strong on that right from from the beginning. So so tell us why you do put that so uh, front and centre of your story. I think the reason why I put mental health and addiction together in the way that I did is because I'm yet to meet another alcoholic or an addict who at some point in their life hasn't had some kind of trauma or concern with their mental health and I didn't start drinking until you know I was a teenager got to sixth form all bets were off but before that the what was constant was mental health and I think for me when I was trying to access support for my mental health, they'd say it was alcohol. I'd try and support, you know, get support for the alcohol, they'd say it was mental health. And the way that mental health services and alcohol and addiction services are so separate isn't working. And for me, me drinking was a symptom. So I drank to cope and I drank to, you know, quieten the mind, block out any feelings. Um, yeah, it was a way to cope. So it was so important for me from the off that mental health was um, joined with addiction because I don't think, for me, I can't separate my mental health from my alcoholism. It's too hard because they're so linked. You give a very good example of your kind of childhood nicknames. Your 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 sister was called Big Truck because she was quite <laughs> noisy and you were called Kitten, which kind of gives us a great picture of the of where you stood in the family. So you were a sensitive child, you yeah. were a quiet child. Tell us about those early memories of anxiety and mental health where you first sort of realised that you found things difficult. Do you know, I think, as you said, or as you've picked up on, I was a very sensitive kid and I was just always just seemed to take things really sent like personally and everything always used to feel like too much and you know it was like meltdowns but I was never a a brat if that makes sense I wasn't naughty I was just a warrior but this I grew up so I was born in 88 so I grew up grew up in the 90s there was no talk about anxiety and kids if you were a crier crying you were a crier you know, or if you were acting out, you were a pain in the arse. Like, the, you know, the, there was no, oh, something going on for her. And and I just always had this, like, knot in my stomach all the time. You know, what do people think of me? Must impress me, teachers. Just this constant worry about what others thought of me or, you know, what would happen, what if, what next. And I didn't know it was anxiety. And it did start to present itself physically, but I couldn't connect to it. So, like, I used to pull my hair out. I had a, you know, big ball patch. Um, like I say in the book, it, I had a, a comb over that could rival Donald Trump's by the age of, you know, 10, 10 or 11. And n- no one really spoke about it. It was just a bad habit. Stop stop pulling your hair out. Stop pulling your hair out. But clearly, if we lo- were looking at, you know, if we were looking at that now, you think, oh, something's going on with this kid. And, and that kind of progressed into my teens and, and then more self-harming came in, into it. Um, but yeah, I was just always, I lived on my nerves. I was just a bag of nerves, but a way to to cope with those nerves was to pretend that I was this outgoing, confident. So I was very good at putting on a show and then behind closed doors, I was just a mess. And then I was so dependent then on my mum to fix it. Oh, mum, And But to the outside world, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm good. And then tell me about um, the drink when that kind of came in and and was and immediately you could almost see that this was a way to cope with all of those things. That mm. This was a way to quieten all that anxiety. Do you remember that feeling? When drink came into my life, like I've just uh, said before, I, you know, I went, I, I drank in the park. I was a good kid because of me nerves. I, I, you know, I did my homework. I was I was academic. I, I went a bit of bother in school. I had a, a quick. Uh, tongue on me but I weren't um, 
you know, the classic rebel child. I just wasn't. But I tell you what, when when you go from high school to sixth form and you go from having a uniform, you know, and all of the rest of it to all this freedom, you get your, you know, your little Saturday job, you get your money and you can go to the pub. And it was that transition that I kind of rein, reinvented myself and I just took the the drink and the recreational drugs because that that is a part of my story and I'm not ashamed of that. And I just ran with it and I lived then for the weekends. That those weekend moments, those partying, those nights out, that was it was just like I could just be free and I could just escape the the Monday to Friday thoughts and feelings just for a few hours each night. But that those few hours came at a price. But when the drinking started to to come in it started to creep in um that was probably um in my early 20s there was a lot of things going on for me around that time that were out of my control you know me I, I've got Crohn's disease um and and that was all kicking off there was a lot of pressures in the workplace and things like that and you know I'm not from a big drinking family me you know me me dad is and things like that proper you know bloke scaffold a pint you know but my mum wasn't a big drinker so we never really had drink in the house so for me to come home and be like oh I'm just gonna pour a glass of wine and unwind it's like no 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 that weren't that weren't the culture so I went straight into secret secret drinking and um that as soon as that started to happen I became dependent on it because it just took the quietness out I thought I, it was my solution so I always described that drink was my friend, then it was my crutch, and then finally it was my captor, and I couldn't live with the stuff and I couldn't live without it. People talk about rock bottom, and you do as well, and you talk about rock bottom as a gift. Um, yeah. Tell us, I suppose, if you can tell us a little bit about at its worst, when maybe you were on the way to rock bottom, and, and what finally happened, um, because those moments are very significant, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. So... You know, rock bottom, everyone's rock bottom's personal to them. And, you know, no two rock bottoms are the same. So your rock bottom could be, oh, I made a show myself on a night out, I'll never drink again. Whereas mine, I it, that's the story of my life. I, I have to really, really mess up before I put any change. In. And uh, I'm just never one to nip anything in the bud. Um, and so my rock bottom, it wasn't one event. It was, you know, it was like a 12-month period. It was like a really awful Netflix series that was just <laughs> leading up to just the grimmest season finale. It was just one... A series one. of unfortunate incidents, would we call it that? Yeah, and there was a lot of loss in that year, and I lost, um, so what was happening? So over that 12-month period, I, I became alcohol dependent. And what that means is it's, it's more than a psychological dependence. It's, it's a physical dependence. And if you were to stop drinking immediately, you could die. You know, it's that serious. So I required my first um, chemical detox, which is, as I describe in the book, you wouldn't wish it on your worst your worst enemy. Oh, they're awful. And, you know, you'd think after that first experience that it would be, that would be enough. It wasn't. Clearly, I still had more drinking left in me and I was... Yeah, Melissa, I was, can you explain yeah. what a chemical detox is for people who don't know? Yeah, Sorry yeah, about that. sure, sure. So I, I'm just so used to... <laughs> so I just talk like everybody knows this stuff and, and you know, they don't. Um, so, right, a chemical detox, so... If you are chemically dependent and you start you, you start to show withdrawal symptoms, they're called delirium tremens. Um, what that could look like is you you hear about the sweats, you know, violently shaking. Um, you could have a seizure. Uh, we're not talking a hangover here. A hangover is you know when people say you know when you've had the flu or when you've got a cold. You know when you've had a hangover and you know when you're withdrawn. Yeah, and um, yeah, and you um, could have a seizure. And therefore, what you need to do is to wean down from the alcohol 
and then the hospital under supervision will um, prescribe you with either anti-seizure medication or some kind of sedative to alleviate you from those withdrawal symptoms to safely get the alcohol out your system. So it's it's dangerous stuff, you know. You can't die off a heroin withdrawal fact. You cannot die. You can die off an alcohol withdrawal. That's serious. So you'd think after the first one that would be enough, wouldn't you? But no, I, I still had more drink in me because I didn't want, I didn't accept that I was an alcoholic. Melissa, can you tell us about just what that looks like in terms of the hiding that you were doing and the denial you were in and the kind of some of the things that people might be surprised about um, the extremes that you were at, if you don't mind sharing no, that. Oh, well, no, it's all in the book, isn't it? I'm just, a <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be like, if you don't mind, no, go no, on, tell us. Oh, honestly, <laughs> don't pussy foot around me. Don't worry about it. Um, yes, yeah, so my my hiding and denial, so denial is powerful it will have you convinced, you know, I, I had a bottle in my bag and people would go, you're drunk. And I'd go, how dare you? How dare you? And I was absolutely rotten, stinking drunk. But I was convinced. Vodka was your drink, right? Yeah, vodka was my drink. And it never used to be. So when I used to go out on the town, I used to drink Jack Daniels Diet Coke, no ice. Ice had diluted. Didn't want that. Um and then someone somewhere in the back of my mind, someone said, vodka doesn't doesn't stink. I don't know why I thought vodka didn't have a smell. So I went to vodka, but it does, it stinks. Vodka stinks. It's, it's a horrible smell. But yes, yeah, so that was my poison, quite literally. And uh, yes, yeah, so I could have a bottle of vodka in my bag, stinking like a brewery and still say, I'm not drunk. And I was convinced. And I think... That was a way for me to protect me, my mind's way of protecting myself from the, the truth, which was you are a raging alcoholic. And um, the, the secrecy came in and I was, because everybody around me was wanting me to stop drinking. And it's, it's you know, if everybody around you wants to stop drinking and you're an alcoholic who's not ready to stop, you'll go to some weird, weird lengths. And, you know, I remember I buried a bottle in the back garden thinking no one could notice mud everywhere it looked like we'd had a dead dog in the me mum's back garden I'd you know I had bottles around so you know because of the way I was I was really mentally unwell and and I was off work I was signed off by this point and um my mum was like she was like a prison officer, basically, you know, no phones, no keys. I was allowed, I was on prescribed walks. I was doing lockdown before lockdown. We all knew what lockdowns were and because we couldn't really get much support for me at the time. And, you know, I decanted vodka, you know, in water bottles around a park and I had a little bit of red string on the bush. Now, and I still didn't think I was an alcoholic, you know. I did not, I, honest to God. And when I look back now, I just think, God, you were desperate. And as much as I can laugh at it, there's a sadness to it because that's how desperate that I was to make sure that there was a supply there and how delusional that I was to the the, the, the huge problem that every single person around me could see. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's what was going on even at, you know, that 12-month that period of the rock bottom as well. And there was a lot of loss. Like I said, I lost my freedom because I was a danger to myself and others outside the house. I was being found in the most uh, questionable places, you know, looking. I was just a very vulnerable young woman who wasn't safe outside the home. Um, And so I lost my freedom. I definitely lost my marbles. I lost my friends. I'd lost my career. I'd lost my dignity you know, I'd lost the respect and the trust of me mum. You were a teacher. Yeah, yeah. So that, and that, that, I do feel that, that role. So I was a primary school teacher and I think I was always looking in life for that one role to make life make sense. I think that's what we're all looking for. You know, when I do this, that's when I'll know I've made it. Okay. And then I, so I got this and I tell you the happiness that I felt and I was so fulfilled but around that time, my health diagnosis was was yeah I was I was quite ill with me Crohn's and 
you know, hospital admittance and things like that. And there was a, a lot of big life changes going on and that coupled with the pressure of trying to be a cross between Mary Poppins and Miss Honey from Matilda, all that, you know, pressure just got too much and, you know, that the, the secret drinking of an evening, you know, started to um, to creep in. But then I obviously then that feeling of I'm living this double life and then trying to conceal me Crohn's, trying to conceal me mental health, trying to conceal the drink and trying to be this, you know, upstanding member of society who kids really want to... So I was... I was at breaking point and I ended up, um, you know, I was signed off, rightly so, mental health, because it, I couldn't... I'm, I've never been a plate spinner, never been able to spin plates and all the plates just smashed around the ground. So you lost your job as, as a teacher, like you had to leave your job? So, yeah, so I walked away and by doing that, so the, 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 the job itself, I thought um, I should have known better. I didn't know who or what an alcoholic was. I, I thought that it was a moral affliction. I thought it was I was a greedy person. I thought I was a weak-willed person. I did not know that it was a legitimate mental health, um, mental illness. Um, and I was so ashamed. that I, So I didn't ask for help because I was terrified. What, what if the school found out? And um, I know there's a lot of people I've been in so many people get in touch with me saying, thank you for what you've shared, but I can't tell my employer. And it's so sad. And I think what my recovery journey's taught me is that, I promise you, it doesn't matter who you are, what bit of paper you've got, what education you have got, what you haven't got, how much is in the bank, you know, what childhood you did have or you didn't have, it can affect anybody and our jobs do not define us. And although leaving that job and walking away, it was it was so, so painful. Uh, it was one of the losses that I needed to reach the point where I thought, I can't do this no more. So that was in that 12-month rock bottom period. So, yeah, there was a lot of loss. And um, the final drink was um, on the 24th of August, 2017, um, and as I said, it was just like this build-up period and you know, being locked in, you know, arguments in the family home. My mum, you know, my mum absolutely burnt out by her all. My sister hating me, and I was just gone. I was nowhere to be found. I was just broken. It was just dead behind the eyes. You know, the lights were on. They, they weren't even on. The lights weren't on, and there was no one home. And um, I ended up breaking out of the house. Oh God, I broke out of the house and unpicked this window, shimmied out. I w- wouldn't recommend, would not recommend shimmying out of a window and, um, you know, hobbling down the street. And I just remember just looking at myself and thinking, who are you? Like, what is going on? And then to help me with that, them feelings, what'll make it better, or a drink. So you just end up in that cycle. And then, I, you know, I was found, again, in a very vulnerable state. And um, it was like I could see everything clearly for the first time. I could see just how sick I was. I could, And I could see just how sick my mum was. And if anybody knew me before, you know... Um, the drink and took off, they'd know that I, you know, I worship the ground my mum walks on. So the fact that I put her through all of that and I could see it. And then, yes, yeah, so and my final drink was, as I said, 24th of August. And it was my mum who had to pour me because obviously, as I described before, I have to wean down from the drink before you can start that detoxification process. So the fact that your own mum has to pour you your final drink that's that's scorched in my my memory. Yeah, I mean that's very. I mean I know that you've have, have made your podcast and talked about it a lot, but it's still a very difficult, obviously, time that you're recalling there. I'd like to before we talk about maybe the happier but also full of hard work phase of your recovery, which was not uh, immediate, which was a very long process, which I know still goes on for you, even though you're sober three years now, which is is great. I'd like to go back to when you were nineteen because there's a very interesting bit in your book where you talk about an abortion that you had. And um, I don't know if you know much about we've had a 
we've had quite a journey here in Ireland because it was illegal for us until um, we repealed the Eighth Amendment in 2018. So there's a kind of a, a sense of freedom for women here now when they need an abortion, they don't have to go to England, which is what we used to do. I went to London myself as a younger woman and had an abortion. And I think it's also important, though, to talk about experiences like yours, because I was really I was really shocked to see when I read in your book about your abortion, how you were actually crying, you know, just before it was was going to happen. And and I would have thought and I would have hoped and I would hope now um, that if someone was showing signs like that of being distressed and not really in their right mind about going through with an abortion, that that would be a time to maybe stop and and, and really check in. But instead you were told if you keep crying, he's not going to do it. I was really taken aback by that. So maybe just could you take us back there if you don't mind? Yeah, yeah. And now it's, um, well, this is the first time I've put, apart from the book, first time I've publicly spoke about it. When I say it's been off limits, no one could even talk to me about it without, I have any, it's only been the last, since coming into recovery, I could say the word abortion. I couldn't say it. And that that time, you know, like I said, I was an academic kid. I was a bit of a goody two-shoes, to be honest. So anyone who tells me to do something who I thought was in a, you know, a, you know, a doctor tells you, if you don't do it, or a nurse or someone, I've always been taught, you do as you're told, you know. And um, when I was 19, the decision didn't feel right. But the fear of not going ahead of it was far greater than uh, me trying to use my voice. Because I didn't feel like I had a voice. I had I put everybody else's opinions above my own, but I didn't consult with people. I should have spoken to my mum, and I didn't. And I was just listening to the, the partner at the time, and it was, it was a place of fear. But I'd already connected, if that makes sense. And it, it, I know it didn't feel right. And on that day, I remember going there, and I was sobbing. I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. And I just remember the woman saying, because it wasn't um, the, the, the one where you take the pill. It was, it was uh, uh, one where you go under general anaesthetic. And even the reason why it was that long, because I put it off. So I was, it was like my actions. I was hoping that someone would read my actions because I didn't have the words. This girl's cancelled a couple of times. She doesn't want it. This this girl's crying in the waiting room. We shouldn't do it. But it was... Um, oh, I'm getting a bit emotional. But, yeah, it was really... Um, it was really difficult. And I just remember waking up. Oh, and I remember the nurse saying, that, if you don't stop crying, you won't do it. So I thought, right, better stop crying, better stop crying. And then I woke up. And when you put under a general anaesthetic, you, you just wake up and you're all a bit all over the place. And I just was screaming, screaming, what have you done? And then it was almost like that that was what the the, the real me was set, but I didn't have the words when I was, you know. And uh, I just, I left that day and, uh, I, you know, I, I, don't, I genuinely weren't the same. So I went to a convent high school, you see. <laughs> I had there had to be some kind of Catholic guilt coming in here. I knew that when I read that oh, in the book, yeah. it made always sense. Always in it, always, yeah. So I went, so born, raised Catholic, but I wouldn't say practice and what I like to call Scouse Catholic. So we'll be <laughs> like dressed up to the nines, communions are a big deal, baptism, but just like this low level drip feed of of Catholicism that just seeps into the psyche, doesn't it? And um, and I, 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 I genuinely consider myself for a good 10 years, I, I don't use this, I don't like to say it out loud, but I, I believed and I thought that I, I'd committed murder. And it was, it, and I, 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 I couldn't hold babies. I couldn't, I couldn't go past that thing. I could, that, that, the nurse's words were in me and, and the, the, I couldn't connect with my nephew. And, and I think even, I haven't said this, I didn't say this in the book, but I, I even think, you know, going into teaching, I think that was even a way of me trying to, you know... Atone. Atone, yeah. And um, and it was a, it was painful. But I think what I... I just assumed 
or naively assumed that I'd, um, I wouldn't feel that way because I had no right to feel. I, I didn't think I had any right to feel any kind of grief or loss because it was my decision or, you know, it wasn't my, I don't know, but because I'd went ahead with it. Um, so I didn't, so I had a lot of those feelings suppressed and it, because I'd had friends in my life who was, who had had abortions and I hadn't affected them, again, I felt quite different that I had to keep it to myself because, you know, what what it, it was only this or it was only that, but it wasn't yeah. only that. Exactly, Melissa. Like listening to you, I'm thinking about when you came out of the general anaesthetic compared to when I came out of the general anaesthetic, right? I was like... You know, it wasn't pleasant. I wasn't happy that I had to leave and fly over to London. And it was all very cloak and dagger. There was loads of things that weren't good. But I'll tell you, the one thing I felt was absolute relief, right? Because in my heart, I was totally doing the right thing. I knew it was okay. I knew this was a good thing I was doing for myself. I cannot imagine what that must yeah. have felt like to feel like you had, in, at a very vulnerable moment, been facilitated to make something you considered to be a mistake and to be not just a mistake, something wrong and how that must have affected your, again, your mental health was shaky as it was, how much yeah. that must have exacerbated that. My heart goes out to you because, you know, abortion regret is a small amount of people who feel it, but it's real when it happens to people. But like when we were campaigning for, to get abortion made legal here, you know, people wanted to sell those abortion regret stories as if that was every woman. And it really isn't. It's just, like you said, most of your friends who've had abortions yeah. went on with their lives. And you know what? I must say, regardless of what my regret at that time, because I've I've healed from that. It it was it had to happen. I am still very much the regardless of what I experienced, I am still very much pro choice and I will always be that way but that's the whole point of it isn't it it's like allowing every woman to make the choice that's right for themselves like if the choice for you at that time was to have a baby you should have been helped and supported in that decision or maybe just needed a bit more counseling before you made the the decision to have an abortion or whatever it was that's why I was so shocked to read it though because no woman should ever feel any way coerced or like I don't know what I'm doing in that very important decision making situation so I just think it's really important you wrote about it. And also, I mean, even if you weren't, I'm really glad to hear you are very pro-choice anyway. But this is the thing. We can not want abortion for ourselves, but still know that other women need and deserve the right to make to make that choice. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, as I say, for, for I'd say for 10, what? So I was 19 now. I, I took, what, 11, 10, 11 years, you know, it, I, if I look at who I am today, where I'm at, the, the version of me and the version of me today that I always wanted to be, and I'm doing things that I only could have dreamed of, and I'd like to think that I'm the best daughter I've ever been, the best friend to others I've ever been, the best sister and all of that. Now, if, what, if one of those life events didn't happen, I wouldn't be here today. That's how I can make peace with that. And I tell you, the biggest thing that I did, I had to forgive so when I think of that 19-year-old girl, I can't, I beat her up. I thought, Yo, you, oh, you, you, you should have done this, you shouldn't have done that. And I, I had a real, I hated her. I think of her now and I just give her a big cuddle because actually, you poor, poor, poor cow, you, you didn't know, you, you, you did, like, you, you just weren't ready. You weren't, weren't, you genuinely weren't ready. And you, there's a temptation to romanticise as well. And I, you know, well, if I would have did this, this wouldn't have happened and all of that. And, and that that is a dangerous place You can when you go down that route. And I did that for quite some time. But I know now that that experience had to happen. You know, getting locked in the house had to happen, losing everything to get me to this point today. And like I said, I, I had to, you know, I, I, did, I did have to like derobe the catharsism. <laughs> I won't lie. Like, I, I've still got me Madonna around my neck and I've still got a, a, a picture of Lourdes in me thing because my granddad's a good... Once a Scouse Catholic, always a Scouse Catholic. That's it, so I've still got that. But I, I did have to remove the, you know, take those layers off. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't a bad person. I, I was just a very young girl. And, and, and I see now, as I said, all of that had to happen. And, 
you know, me me going through that might help someone else. Absolutely. Because the, yeah. those those types of conversations, you know, I was on an R and my mum was like, because obviously I'm not married or not, and I just know my mum was thinking, oh, she'll never get a felon now. And I was thinking to me, I was thinking to myself, should I put it in? And then I kept, I, I, I didn't talk about it on the pod, and I thought to myself, Do you know what, I'm, I'm, I've got to talk about it because it happened, and actually it played out so many different parts of my life that it would have been a fraudulent book if I didn't put that in. Well, I, I'm really grateful you did it because I think the subject is so complex and it's always good to talk about it in all the different ways in which a woman experiences it and it can only help people. And I think, uh, but I'm really glad that you have, I, even though it took a long time, you've come to a place where you look back and you think that girl wasn't ready to have a baby. And even though at the time it felt like you were a murderer or whatever, all those things that you told yourself, you know now that even in your confused and vulnerable state, you did something that was probably the right thing but I think I definitely feel so sorry for you that you were put in that position where to shut up stop crying stop expressing your emotion and then have have an operation to do something so it turned out to be life-changing in the right way for you in in the end but you went through so much mains so thank you let's talk about happier things in a way when you finally you had the last drink and you were starting the rest of your life um that that, that what led you to here it's three years ago it must be still very raw because that three years is not a long time. So, yeah, well, it's about three and a half years now. So it'll be four years in August. What are we now? March. Yeah. So, yeah, about three and a half years. So, yeah, so I, went, I ended up, as I said, trying to get support was really difficult. Funding is non-existent. And on paper, you know, I didn't have any children. I hadn't been to prison. And all that has all these positives against me that didn't make me eligible for public funding. It's really difficult in England at the minute to access public funding for, for residential treatment. And um, luckily, I was able to go to treatment um, through a charity called Action on Addiction. And I did six weeks in Wiltshire there. And because it was just a, such a long time coming and it genuinely felt like a lottery win, and I just thought I've got to make the most of this. So I just gave it just it was almost like I just handed my life over to them. I just thought, I trust you. You know what you're doing. You've been doing this. I my best thinking got me burying bottles in my mum's back garden. You guys know what you're on about. So I gave myself over to the process. And I, I think be, because my uh, final drink on those days and, and all of the rest of it were that traumatic. And I, you know, it it was a traumatic experience. I never, I would have, I would do anything in my power never to have to go back to that place again. So that's, you know, th that's why I'm so grateful that it was so harrowing because I never want to forget that. So for me now today, as painful as it is, and you know, maybe some people prefer not to remember the darkest day. If I don't remember those darkest days, that drink might look a little bit more appealing. So I need to just always have a you know my little finger on it and yes yeah, so I went to treatment and then from there the counselling in clouds that was the treatment centre's name they said look if you go back to Liverpool your family haven't healed if you go back you're going to relapse well that wasn't an option so again I was like oh what do we do and then the Amy Winehouse Foundation funded me to go to secondary treatment. Melissa, tell us about the Amy Winehouse Foundation, because obviously everybody listening will recognise her name and be, yeah, I mean, yeah. we're all such big fans and what an amazing woman and what a sad story that was. So tell us about that and how they reach out to people who are in situations like yours. So I'm a trustee on on, on the Amy Winehouse Foundation now, um, which, which is a huge honour. So um, when Amy passed... A uh, family wanted to set up a foundation in her honour to help young women. It was at first for young women, aged 18 to 30, um, experiencing addiction. And, you know, part of Amy's legacy, you know, they've, 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 there's a few strands to the work. They educate schools through a programme called the Resilience Programme. Um, they fund projects, music projects, but when it comes to addiction, they they um they help people go to rehab. And there's all, and then they've got a place in London called Amy's Place, and that is a recovery house. It's not a rehab; you can come and go as you please. It's basically a block of flats, um, where young women who've left treatment because 
it's it's a female only, which is really important because a lot of a lot of pe- women who leave rehab, they've endured some really harrowing experiences. So that sense of um, it's female only is really important for a lot of women. So it's a block of flats for young women. There's key workers there, and it's a bridge to independent living. So it's you know the way I describe it, it's almost like. It's like a pair of, you know, training wheels stabilizers, and then one the 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 premise of it is is that you have your stabilizers. Maybe the key worker will hold your hands, then they'll let go of your hands, and then this one one of the the stabilizers will come off, and then the other, and then you're ready to go. Um, and that's what it was. So I stayed there for for two years. You know, it was the first time because I'd always been kitten, like really needy on me mom. I'd always lived at home. And look how that worked out. So it was the first time, <laughs> first time that I'd lived on my own in my own flat, you know, my own front door key, council tax, lecky bills, gas bills. And I was like, oh, God. Um, and it was there where I had to really think, OK, well, what do you want to do? You're in the capital city. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I didn't want to go back to teaching because the ending was, it just didn't sit right. And I just felt like I'd been through too much to to go back to something and I've got friends you know me the co-host on Hooked Jade she went back to nurse and I've got friends who've returned back to their careers but for me I just wanted to move on and I'd never want never want to put myself at risk of being out again I'm not sitting up marking 90 bucks you know I've got to put my recovery first and that's what I was taught in rehab put your recovery first and the rest will all make sense so I just started to explore my options and then I did a couple of internships and and then a key worker in um, Amy's place was just like, have you ever thought about public speaking? I was like, oh, all right, no. Um, and then anyway, Jane Winehouse and Mitch, they asked me to speak at the Amy Winehouse Foundation Gala and, and, I, and I did that and I just shared my experience. And then it was from that point that I thought... I, I actually need to speak up about this because the the diet that we're fed of addiction from the media is really unhelpful. You know, you only have to Google my name, right? Google my name, alcoholic teacher, post Jack, <laughs> Jack Daniels on cereal. I did that one time in Glastonbury. And, and you know, it, no one ever lets you forget it. No, when somebody put Jack Daniels no, on cereal. No, no one will. It'll be on my headstone, I promise. <laughs> fuming absolutely fuming but just the way you know so addiction is it's it's it people are vilified it's sensationalized it's it's the the derogatory language that's attached to it and I was just so angry about it because I I I'd gorged on that diet myself that was my understanding and it's it's sad that you have to go through it yourself before you realize okay that ain't, that's all rubbish. This is a real thing. This is a real condition. Um, so I had to, to yeah, so I, I just felt like a pull to set the record straight and I didn't know what to do or how to do it and all the rest of it. And then a key worker says, oh, there's a little competition there in the BBC. Now, I want to talk to you about this moment in the book because you know what? It was really interesting. You'd been through your recovery. You were getting your life together, getting that independence, trying to discover what it is that you was going to be your life's purpose in, in a way. It reminds me a bit of um, Marion Keyes because uh, she's a good friend of the podcast and a friend of mine. And, you know, when she, it was when she ended her rehab um, that the creative thing, the writing started to come out, something she'd always wanted to do and it started to flow out of her. And you have a similar experience in a way where it was when you were in that good, healthy space that suddenly this this dream of writing and this, this um, skill that you had anyway in university and and other parts of your life came to the fore. It's it's great. Do you see a parallel there? Are you a fan of Marion's? Yeah, yeah. No, I can totally, I, yeah, I can really identify with that. And I think that's because, well, I know well, I can't speak for, for anyone else. I can only speak for me. But when your mind's preoccupied with with drink, you know, you've got, when that's, that desire to, to drink has been lifted or you have a healthier relationship with yourself and you you think, oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm not a piece of shit. I'm all right, you know. Like you're thinking, oh, I'll try that. And you have a, you, you've just got this, what else have you got to lose? You've been, you've been to the depths of hell. Go for it, see what happens. What's the worst that can happen? 
you're not going to get locked in the house again if if you you write something and it's a load of rubbish. You can say you've tried it, and and that's that's what happens with me. And and it's funny because I always wanted to write. I mean, mates always said, "Oh, your sense of humour is disgusting." You know, you need to to write something. I never had nothing to write about. <laughs> <laughs> it's only when you end up pickled and bloody batshit <laughs> that you realise, oh, I've got something to write now. So that, that's kind of what happened. Um, so there was a competition. Sorry, I interrupted you there, but your key worker told you about it. Yeah, so she said there's a competition there. And I said, oh, yeah, what's it for? She had a podcast. I'm like, all right, okay. <laughs> it was back then when everyone was saying what's a podcast but pretending they knew all about podcasts they were great oh, days yeah. there was a lot of time I, oh. I remember doing a, a talk once to tell people about podcasts and I could just see everyone in the audience just like looking at me going what are you talking about you yeah and but it was a 500 word submission so um there's a a, broad, a, a broadcaster in the U, uh, in England uh, her name was Rachel Bland and you might have heard of the podcast you me and the big C and Rachel was the the brainchild of you, me, and the big C. And sadly, uh, Rachel um, died from from cancer. And her husband and her best friend, all in the BBC, they wanted to set up an award in her honour to um, to create the next community podcast that kind of not the same, but was able to give a a different opinion. So what Rachel and the team did for cancer, you know, they changed the narrative. They, you know, broke the taboo. And so the BBC were looking for the next community and they wanted light and shade. Why is everyone obsessed with light, light and shade? Light and shade. Light and shade. We need a bit of light and shade. We like to think that the women's podcast has a lot of light and shade. Well, there we go. So they wanted light and shade and then they wanted, uh, you know, a, a voice to yeah all that set the record straight stuff so I read the brief and I thought oh aye aye that's that's addiction that so anyway so I took the, the brief up to me little flat and what have you and I just thought I'll throw everything at it because that's what I do now I do it do everything to my best put it in and that was it so I submitted it and then did, I, when I it's this isn't like a and you know and then I didn't expect to hear anything back I genuinely did not ex why would I? I'm just an alley from Kirby. He's lost everything. I'm former everything. recovering Morris yeah, dancer. Exactly. Morris dancer, you know, telly addict, been, you know, all of the rest of it. Like no one's gonna read that. Uh but anyway, I did it. And then it was it was a good thing to tell me counsellor at the time, you know, I've done something really good for myself. A bit of, you know, I've really pushed myself. So, you know, it was a bit of that. It was a mental health exercise. Shut everyone up. But I did. I threw everything at it and uh, submitted it. Didn't think, whatever. And then, anyway, gets an email back. And uh, was like, oh, you're through to the next round. Well, I thought, shit. I thought, so, <laughs> and so I had a cracked iPhone because, as I said, didn't have, didn't have a carrot, didn't have any money. Was on benefits and all the rest of it. I thought, oh, all these people are going to be, you know, downloading software, this, that, and the other. I did it on a cracked iPhone, and I thought, right, who can, who, who got in in this, who got in my life? And it was Jade. So Jade, we met on the first day of rehab. She was a mental health nurse. I was a teacher. We thought we were the worst, worst two people in, on, you know, on God's earth, and we bonded over that. She doesn't give a flying F about any like about what people think I, I do. We are so we are good cop, bad cop. I've got all the feelings, I'm tiny tears. She she isn't. And when we were in rehab, the to to put me like to, to get me out of my comfort zone, the counsellors made me house leader. I and I, I, I couldn't run a bath. Like there's not, I couldn't never mind run a community. And guess who the deputy was? The deputy <laughs> chief, Jade. So, and that was kind of like, it was always written in the stars, you know what I mean? I thought, Jade, you'll do. And then anyway, she went, 
but she may as well patted me on the head and thought, oh, good for you. I'll help you out. I'll help you out. But anyway, lo and behold, it won. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? You got you got chosen out of all those entries to, to make a BBC bloody podcast. You hadn't have been. You'd nothing in the bank. You'd no prospects. You were in this recovery <laughs> space. And there you were on the BBC. Yeah, it was crazy. And what, what I would say is Jade and I, we, we, we made a, a deal early on. You know, I said, whatever happens, I said, we put our recovery first, put our friendship second, and then the rest will have to, the rest will have to wait. And we were really, we minimise, like, we're really good at detaching. I've got a really, yeah, it, sometimes it can be helpful, you know, if I really thought everybody, you're going to be, you know, people all over the UK are going to be listening, it would have been too much. So we just really minimised it in our heads and just really tried to keep it as if we're just two friends talking but we we didn't know it was only supposed to be six episodes and and it and it did download hundreds of thousands of times it was it's won loads of awards it was called hooked but um just before because we haven't talked enough about it and maybe just for the next couple of minutes there's a few things i want to ask you about um just your own you've you've learned so much the book is brilliant because i think there's a lot of even though it's about um your journey to recovering from from alcoholism i feel like it's universal i feel like for anyone who's struggling with lots of different things like we all do some people shop some mm. people eat too much food some people you know we there's there's like there's so many things that we're all struggling with and i think in this pandemic a lot of people are finding things difficult um to deal with too so i actually just want to tell people don't think you can only buy this book if you've got an alcohol issue um because it's definitely going to help you in loads of other ways. But just what is brilliant about it is the way you weave all your experts in your life in this book. You've so many great sound people who are, you know, have studied alcoholism who can really give the the great advice. So you don't, you tell your own story, but you also bring in experts, which is brilliant. So I just wanted to ask you a few things. I mean, you know, talk about maybe practical st- tips for people because you know, maybe someone has a friend or knows someone or themselves are struggling, especially we had a story in the Irish Times recently about the alcohol consumption in Ireland, which is very healthy anyway, but it has kind of gone through the roof in in these times. So what would you say about if if you're worried about somebody, you know, in your life who maybe you think is struggling that way? Is there anything that can be done? I think if I I can only talk from my experience and I think it's just to, to, to listen because I think if you suspect, you know, someone in your life is drinking too much, the drinker, or I know for me anyway, my back was up. And, you know, you've had a drink that accusatory tone. The, the back does go up. And what you've got to remember is there's a lot of shame attached to excessive drinking. And, it's, it, it yeah, just be really gentle with the person and it, and to listen and, and you know not to say oh you need to go to oh certainly don't say to them you're an alcoholic because that you know who wouldn't be defensive over that um but yeah it's just to uh, just tread really tread really lightly and and try and get an understanding on what's actually going on for them because if they're drinking to cope the drink is a symptom there's a deeper issue going on and then just about, uh, you know, you tried lots of different times and different ways. What's your own understanding of why it's it's so hard? I mean, people, you often hear of stories, whether it's drug use or alcohol use or that relapsing and that not being able to do it the first time that some people don't really understand or see it as, again, there's shame around that too, because you're supposed to be perfect instantly. You made the decision, therefore just do it. It's not like that, is it? No, it's it's not like that at all. Yeah, I, I tried. I tried everything uh, to stay sober. At first, I started with a controlled drinking, which is, you know, measuring your units and all of the rest of it. But, you know, I was an alcoholic. No wonder I was, you know, I was going to fail. And I went through all of those types, you know, mindful drinking, keeping a drinking diary. And then it was all rather exhausting for me because I was thinking about the next drink and it was taking up my whole, whole life. And I had to learn the hard way through a series of either dry spells or um, through that the failed uh, controlled drinking and all of the rest of it that actually it's I see it like I'm allergic to the stuff. I have one drop and what it does for me, it won't do for you. 
But once the one's in me, it triggers everything off and I just, and I, and I can't stop. So abstinence was the best way for me. If it's not in my life, I don't have to, I don't have to, uh, to, to, to think about it. But bef- there were periods where I was dry, but I considered myself, I was a dry drunk. And what I mean by that is I'd put the drink down and I didn't work on myself. So of course the drink was going to come back into my life because I didn't understand about the illness I was suffering with. I didn't understand that I had to heal from, you know, past trauma that we've spoken about today. I didn't understand that I didn't have a relationship. I didn't know who I was. So because I hadn't done all of that, that work, that self-development, that recovery stuff, of course I was going to pick up a drink because I was a dry drunk. I was just, I was the same person with just without a drink. I still had the same head. Um, so the, re- the, the reason why I'm still sober now is because I, I will work at my recovery every day. And for me, I go to AA. AA is not for everyone. I'm not a... I really struggled with AA at first because of the God thing. A lot of people do. Um, but it's, it's, it's a spiritual, it's not a religious programme. Um, I was thinking, oh, a bunch of Bible bashes. Oh. And I've been down that road before. Get lost. <laughs> it's a cult. Um, yes, but no, it, it's not. And that, that, that's my programme. And, and as I said, what I've come to realise is that, you know, the drink for me was a symptom. I, I had a problem with life. And I think that's why the book, the book is more about life and mental health and who we are and what I've learned about how to deal with life than it, than it is about drinking. And I, in case anyone listening to this thinks you're now this perfect person, I know you're the best version of yourself. But uh, yeah, no, I'm glad you say near the end of the book that you are someone who, for a recent example, you stood at very late in your kitchen at night eating raw scone dough, sobbing through normal people in your knickers and a, <laughs> and a dressing gown, which you call a house coat. Um, so yeah, just in case anyone has no, any thoughts. And, and that's the thing. Do you know what? I, I, and I, I put it, so I put out a thought, I put it at the beginning of the book and I put it at the end because there's nothing worse than someone preaching at you and when I say I am genuinely it, I am not the <laughs> poster not. girl for anything like I there's and I had to let go of perfectionism because perfectionism is a killer it really is I've got to be this I've got to be that it's progress not perfection like if if I start to say like my way is the best way you need someone needs to ring clouds and see if they've got a spare bed because I'm ready for a relapse because honestly my life's not perfect you know I don't know what will happen in an hour that'll have me who knows I might go in the kitchen again and make a batch of scondo and just eat it in my knickers watching normal people and cry oh I can't even talk about that (laughs) I know we could talk about Paul Meskel all day couldn't we (laughs) I want to ask you something else um, and it's not actually to do with your book but I'm just thinking of you there in London I think you're a similar age to Sarah Everard and Mm. I just wondered how you know you're you're actually there where that happened and we're all reeling from it I think all over the world people are and women are recounting their experiences and I know in your book you talk a lot about consent and 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 dodgy situations that you got yourself into as a young woman so I just wanted to ask you about her we're all it's incredible. We're all very touched by what has happened and moved and angered. I genuinely can't describe the feeling that I know it's brought up in me and all of my female friends at the minute. There is a, a real, and, and male friends, you know, I, I had a male friend last night ask me how I was feeling, which I was really grateful for, actually. There is this feeling of unrest, a genuine feeling of unrest and it, to to think, so it was my 33rd birthday on Wednesday, just gone. And to think that Sarah was 33 and yesterday, so, so uh, yeah, yesterday, I, so I was walking along the street and two kids tried to pinch my, my phone out my hand and I can hold my own. I've got a smart mouth on me, but, and I started to cry and I wanted my mum. And I think what it's made me feel, if, if that's how I felt if someone's not snatching my phone. You know, I wanted my mum and that's, and that made that, it's just, it's just so wrong. And the fact 
you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that uh, there are people now talking about what we have to, to do. And I probably never really realised, you know, those the lists that people are putting up of the things that we have to do that men don't. And it's making me really, really angry, really angry. You know, the keys in the hand have done that, you know, rounding off the corner and sprinting down the street, done that loads of times, pretending I'm on the phone. I remember once asking the shopkeeper, could I just stand and talk to him just because, you know, all these different things we're so, we're so used to, but it, that's, that stuff's not okay. And, and, and the anger for me comes from when, I, when the, 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 you know, the experience of what happened to Sarah Facebook, people saying... Well, she shouldn't have been that. You do not, do not, do, just, just don't. Just don't. There is somebody there who, who's lost their life. There is a family group. Do not start pointing the finger because it's just, again, the blame is on the woman. And that it's just um, the, that feeling at the minute in London is, is quite palpable. Um, and I think it'll it, it'll take some time for things to, but I I won't be going out now, and that's um that's that that's me being you know I I I'm got a stitch in the fridge and I I thought I didn't want I just didn't want to go to the shop last night, didn't want to go to the shop because I just thought no. I know. Um, I really appreciate you talking about it, and I know it's it's again very raw and very hard, and it's it's really. Fascinating to some people how much of a nerve it's touched and to most of us it's not surprising because like you say we can all relate to it on some level. It's a, I was talking about this the other day and it's it's this big spectrum of, of things that we've all had to do and the the last most worst thing is that you get murdered but on the way to that there's so many things that can happen and that we're afraid of happening and I mean, I'm only hoping that this might be some kind of a turning point, but we always kind of hope that we've been talking about it for decades. You know, I was talking to an, an older friend of mine who says, you know, 40 years ago, she was on these Reclaim the Streets marches. And, you know, but I don't know. The only thing is, I do think, like you said about your male friend, like men are talking about it more now. Men are starting to feel like they're part of the solution, you know, um, and that they don't have to take it so personally. And obviously most men are good men, you know, we're not talking about all men and that stupid hashtag keeps propping oh, up, don't. drive you mad. But the point is, we're talking about a subset of men, aren't we, that that do these things. And, and other men can help and can be part of the solution. The good men, you know, of which there are so many. Anyway, I could talk to you about it all day. But finally, will you just tell people why they should buy your book? Because I agree with you. I don't think it's just for people who have an issue with, with alcohol. You know, I, I got a lot out of it, I have to say. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. Um... Why should <laughs> this is your elevator pitch, Melissa? Come on, get it together. <laughs> no, do you know, do you know what it is? I'm the you and you'll read in the book. <laughs> I'm the worst, the worst self promoter ever. I'm not cut out like I'm not the type of I like t- take my hat off to social in- influencers who do all that hey guys stuff because I haven't got it in me. I couldn't sell vodka to a 2017 <laughs> version of me. I haven't, I'm not a salesperson. I okay. am not a salesperson. So what, why should people buy the book? Um, do you know what? There's more to it than my story. It, I've tried to capture the recovery post process. There's friends, you know, anybody who knows anybody who's been affected by drink can relate to the book. I've included the voices of family members, friends, professionals, other recovering people, not just alcoholics. There's people with drugs, there's gambling, problem gamblers. And the it's just all of the advice that I've picked up and all of the 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 lessons that I learned the hard way. So there's lessons within lessons. And I just think, if anything, if you are struggling with your mental health, um, just please, but or even if you just question and you drink, if you can identify with one part of my book, then you've identified, you've connected with it, and you can you can 
inquire a bit more. I don't know if I well, sold it. No, I... you sold it very well. And Melissa, I would add to that, that it's also very funny. Funny. And, <laughs> you know, you are the queen of light and shade. You might as well just own it because that's that's your superpower. So just stop slagging it off. And you're you're uh, you do that so well. It's really funny. It's really sweary. It's really sensible. It's really honest. And um, I'm really glad I read it. And it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you as well. Uh, thank you for being so open about everything and for, for putting it out in the world because I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Melissa Rice there. I really enjoyed that conversation and I enjoyed her book, which I highly recommend. It's called Sobering Lessons Learned the Hard Way on Drinking, Thinking and Quitting. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can contact us on social media at IT Women's Podcast or do drop us an email on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.